The worship team did amazingly. I just really feel like recognizing because for two reasons. Firstly, in our world, the academic and rational and practical is always valued higher than the creative and the beautiful, and it shouldn't necessarily be. That's an arbitrary thing. Um, And secondly, because that effortless, beautiful thing that happened there takes a huge amount of effort and going out at night to practice. So all the vocalists and musicians in our church who work so hard to lead us are just, yeah, I think deserve a huge thanks. Um, So welcome. Uh, I bring you glad tidings of great joy Uh, in a small corner of the Middle East, a great gift will be unveiled uh, in 67 matches time um, when the World Cup champions are crowned. Now, the World Cup starts today. I'm very excited about it. Questionable money being used for the ends of sports washing has been paid to corrupt people in order to pull the eyes of the world onto the nation of Qatar for no reason other than to pretend they're more legitimate than they are, and thousands of people have died in the processes of making the stadiums. But on the other hand, Leo Messi might finally win the World Cup. I'm very excited about it. Um, so, yeah, if we can all uh, pull our minds back from such weighty and important matters. Um, or maybe it's just me that's going to struggle, and all the rest of you are better spiritual athletes than I am. Um, we're, we're in a series about... Gratitude. Now, think for a second. Do a little bit of of work on your own here. What would you suspect are the main um, motives behind most human communication? I would suspect there's a fairly short list, actually, of the things we're generally trying to achieve or elicit in our hearers when we're communicating. So think for a second. What might some of those be? You don't have to. You can shout them out. That's the version of communication you feel like doing. Um, But what are people mostly trying to achieve when they communicate with one another? I mean, I'd be interested to know what's starting to occur to you. Clearly, some of the time, it's simply a transfer of information, but there's always a why behind that. So why do I need you to know these things? Am I trying to get some stuff done? Trying to get you to do some things for me, (laughs) often? But if that's the goal, then we'll often add a little extra to it, like maybe I'm trying to elicit sympathy in you when I communicate. In fact, I think a lot of the time in this day and age, on social media particularly, people are trying to generate some sympathy, aren't they? Oh, woe is me, this terrible thing happened. Or outrage is like a hyped up version of sympathy. Or maybe some of the time I won't admit it, but I'm actually trying to create some envy in you when I communicate right? Because I want a little bit of kudos in your eyes. But very rarely, I think, is genuinely the motive behind any communication just gratitude for its own sake. Would I be right in saying that? Like, how many people do you go, that lady is just so grateful? Or after a conversation with someone, you walk away going, the the big takeaway for me is they just feel so lucky, like so blessed, like so undeservedly favored, right? Like, Because gratitude doesn't get you any sympathy, and a lot of the time we're really keen on that. Gratitude doesn't really get anything done. Gratitude doesn't really get anything done, and so much of our communication is about efficacy, getting something done. Gratitude, when it's done right, shouldn't get you any credit either. Christians often do it wrong, and they're talking about how good God is, but you somehow walk away with the impression that they're really good. I hate people like that. Um, 
And it's like, oh, your faith was good enough to notice how good God is. Oh, I suck even more than I thought I did. Like, no, that's not gratitude. Like, that's just bragging. Or feign brag, as the Afrikaans would say. Um, but genuine gratitude doesn't do anything. And yet the psychologists would tell you that it is the most healthy form of communication you should engage in. Like being grat- grateful, cultivating gratitude in your life is more good for you than even going for a walk. <laughs> I've seen it re- written. Like it's really, really important that we figure out how to flick ourselves into a mode of being grateful as opposed to feeling entitled or hot done by. So this series is about just, I suppose allowing the weight of Scripture to squeeze some gratitude out of us, even if we're reluctant, yeah? Even if I mostly feel like, you know, I'm a bit hard done by, or other people have more reason to be grateful than me. No, we're going to let Scripture just cause an accurate response in us. Um, and so before we do that, and I'm really excited about this, these concepts that we're going to talk about for the next little while. I want to ask you to do some praying, whether you're here, whether you're listening on the podcast, or you're in the mother's room. Sometimes preachers pray and ask you to watch, which is a thing, I guess. But I'm going to ask you to pray for this sermon. I've prayed a fair amount for this sermon up till now. I'm ready, I think. You need to pray um, that God is going to do whatever he wants with you. Because think about it. There's no reason why today shouldn't be the day, that three years from now you're looking back on going, that was the moment when God deposited that thing. And that's not because of any skill of mine. We're using his scripture. We're trusting his presence to do something directly through his Holy Spirit in you. So please pray for that to happen. Uh, Just take a moment and ask God to do what he wants to do and what you need him to do in you in the next moments. Luke chapter 15, verse 31. He said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. Child, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. This is a father speaking to a very ungrateful, entitled son who's just seen his brother, who ran off and spent all the family fortune, turn up again after years when they thought he was dead and have a party thrown for him instead of punishment dished out. And he's grumpy. And his father pulls him aside and says, Son, you were always with me. And all that I have is yours. Jesus is telling this story to try and help some people understand some stuff about God. So God in this story is being played by the Father, right? Is God maybe saying to you, you're always with me, and all that I have is yours. I want to read a a different quote from a French-Canadian priest, monk type guy from the old days called Henri Nguyen, who I think is amazing. He says, I'm beginning to see how radically the character of my spiritual journey will change when I no longer think of God as hiding, making it as difficult as possible for me to find him, but instead as the one who's looking for me while I'm doing the hiding. We are going to be grateful by the end of today for God's 
presence. Son, daughter, child, you're with me. You're always with me. I'm always here. I'm not hiding. To raise incredible word, and she didn't know this was coming. His presence is here. Not just his presence in some airy fairy. His heart, his personality, his eyeballs are on you. His hands are outstretched towards you. He's here. And not just here, when you walk out, when you go and do some dumb thing, when you get selfish and jealous, when you feel entitled, when you try to cheat someone, when you're completely distracted, when you're watching football, when you're shouting at your children, he's with you always. And even then, everything that he has is yours. If I had to ask you um, what's sort of true of God, like some important things about God, some things that you know to be true, I think most people might go, well, he's powerful, right? Or maybe he's holy, Maybe even he's loving and kind, which obviously all of those things are true. Very few people, I think, would say he's here. One of the most important things about God, one of the truest things about God is that he's present. He's here. Because this is a massive idea for God. Not just like some accident that he happened to turn up here. He has chosen from the beginning of time through to the very end of time I'm about to show you to be with his people. He is passionate about being with his people. He's moved heaven and earth to be with his people. Being present is as true and important about God as being holy. Being present is as true and important about God as him being powerful or loving or kind. And I want to live grateful and sensitive to the presence of God. So often I'm living like he's hiding, right? Or like I'm, I'm, I'm alone and I'll choose to engage or not. I can turn him on and off. He's here. He's with you. So I want to do a little bit of theology, not for the sake of academia, but there are moments when it doesn't feel necessarily like he's here, and in those moments we need the weight of Scripture to overpower what our senses or experience might be telling us. Uh, And so I want to show you that at the very end of time, he's with his people. In the very beginning, he was with his people. Throughout the middle, he's with his people. Even now, he's with his people. And so we're going to do a little quick whistle-stop through this big theological idea of the transcendence and imminence of God. Transcendent, he transcends you. He's bigger than you. He's more amazing, more hard to wrap your head around. He's other. But at the same time, it's just as true, he's right here. He's intimate. He's near. And neither of those two things cancel one and out. He's not one for a while, then the other. He's always imminent and intimate at the same time as being impressive and incredible and transcendent, okay? So that's the plan. So let's zoom to Revelation first. John's on the island of Patmos having an image, an experience of the conclusion of all of redemptive history. This is where God's going. This is what's at the end of his advent calendar, okay? He's marking it down. Can't wait for this moment when he recreates the the heavens and the earth. So Revelation 21, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, a new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, etch this into your minds, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death will be no more. 
There won't be any mourning or crying or pain anymore for the former things have passed away. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. So do we have to wait for that day? Is that a one-day thing? Well, you may remember that back in the Garden of Eden, God loved to just walk with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day. But even after everything had been wrecked and he'd now had to go and save his people out of slavery, Exodus 29, we'll catch up with this moment where God has said to Moses, listen, tell the people, yes, I, I was just on Mount Sinai, so terrifying that if anyone touched the mountain, they would die. So transcendent, so potent that they had to put a fence around the bottom so that you no know, livestock accidentally wandered onto this mountain in southeast Egypt and got killed by the presence of God. Like, I am so powerful. I fling rank upon rank of galaxy out into place, and I can split a sea to let you through, and I've created every atom and every body, and the only reason you guys are breathing right now is because he keeps you breathing. But at the same time, I'm enormous. Like, glory, 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 glory. Tell the people, Moses, I'm coming to camp with them. I want to live with you. Not I'm going to pretend, not put an image. I am coming to stay, says God. I'm going to live with you. You can build me a tent. The God of the universe, who's everywhere and could be anywhere, is going to come and be with you. Tell the people to get ready. There's a special tent they need to make. It's going to be called the tabernacle. The first spiritual gifts ever given were to some artists and artisans, because all that the Israeli, the Hebrews at that stage knew how to make were bricks in Egypt as slaves. And so he gives spiritual gifts to some guys, teaches them how to make incredible tapestry, gold thread, blue thread, amazing woodwork to build this glorious place for God. And you had to come in through a spot where you had to recognize your sin and weakness, make sacrifices because you never get to God without sacrifice, important idea. And then you make your way through to the Holy of Holies where in fact only very, very special people got to go once or twice a year. But in the middle there, behind these thick curtains covered with badger hair, I think, no natural light, God came to dwell. And it was so, his presence was so physically there that they could see light shining through the cracks of this tent, which was not a one-time deal because later on, when they built the temple, God said, when you do the opening ceremony, the inaugurating thing, and you know, like the mayor comes, what could be more boring? Well, at that moment, when you open the temple, my presence will come. And it didn't come, came. Shekinah, glory, cloud, whatever you call it, came down and inhabited the center part of the temple. God said to his people, I'm coming to stay. Exodus 29, there I will meet with the people of Israel. Just, like this is too marvelous, actually, for us to get our heads around. God says there's gonna be this spot, a physical place, in the back of the Middle East somewhere, and the God of the universe who's busy keeping Jupiter spinning at the same time, says, I'm going to live there. I'm going to come meet with my people there. You'll be able to find me there. I'm going to limit myself and make myself intimate and available there. I'll meet with the people of Israel, and it shall be sanctified by my glory. I'll consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar. Aaron also and his sons I'll consecrate to serve as priests. I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God. You recognize that phrase? Revelation, he's still on about it. In the beginning, he's already on about it. I will be their God. They will be my people. I'll be with them. I will dwell with them. They will know that I'm the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I may dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. He's going on and on about this. God may be loving. He may be powerful. He may be glorious. He may be all those things. He's also here, friends, present, not by accident, 
but on express purpose because this is who he is. He loves to be with his people. He's planned to be with his people. He was then. He will be in the future. Then Isaiah in chapter 7 starts talking about another way that he's going to be present. So in chapter 6, we've just been hearing again about the glorious, terrifying, awesomeness of God. Isaiah has a vision, oh my goodness, the train of his robe fills the temple. He says, who will go for me? I don't dare go because woe to me, I'm unclean from a people of unclean lips. You may have heard this bit of Isaiah preached from or quoted before. And the angel comes and puts a burning coal on his mouth and then he you know, says, okay, Lord, send me. Right. So we've just seen the Lord in his throne room, in his glory. The next chapter, Isaiah 7, therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And many, many, many years later, Matthew a former tax collector would quote that bit of Isaiah because it had just happened. And so in Matthew 1, 23, he says, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And it's happened. Jesus has come. The presence of God is not some future idea when he makes a new world. It's not some historical idea from when he used to be in the tabernacle or the temple. Jesus then comes to in the most impressive way possible, say, I'm with you, I'm here, I'm among you. And it doesn't end there, because in 1 Peter chapter 2, Peter has this incredible understanding that this is not, a, this is not actually just a geographical thing. Cool, he made this temple once upon a time, before that he made a tabernacle, before that there was a garden. This is not just some geographical thing. As incredible as it is that God came to some geographical points, and in fact, this isn't even just a historical Moses when, moment when Jesus came. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So the honor is for you who, who believe, but not for those who don't believe. So think for a second what those little threads in the tabernacle would have to say about what it was like when they were the block-out curtains around this little tent that had no natural light inside it, but glowed with the very presence of God. What would they have to say? How superior would they feel compared to other threads, right? Or how about those stones carefully, perfectly cut to fit into the temple which Solomon consecrated? which inhabited the presence of God, where they opened the temple and it wasn't like a cool, some civic buildings just been launched. The presence of God pulled in and said, I'm still here among my people. You, the honor that you who believe have is that you are living stones built into the temple of God to be a dwelling place for God. It's too marvelous. This is too marvelous for us to understand. Yes, he's holy. Yes, he's powerful. Yes, he's loving and other and all those things, but behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. Always has been, always will be. Yes, he's transcendent and other and impossible to wrap your head around, but he is also closer to you than the air on your skin. My son, you were always with me. Everything I have is yours, Jesus teaches us in the parable. I'm thinking often about 
uh, in the book of Daniel, there's this amazing story there in Exodus. Life sucks. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and Daniel are these four young Jewish guys who've been deported. They're in the court of some foreign king. I'll say it again. Life sucks. And they have three years to learn a whole bunch of stuff about the ways of that world. And then they're going to be brought in front of the king to teach them his culture, to teach him their culture and explain what they've learned about his culture. And during that three-year period, they choose consistently to continue to follow God regardless of what it'll cost them. And so they don't eat what they're supposed to eat and they don't worship what they're supposed to worship because they want to remain true to God. And there's this moment where they get found out and some jealous neighbors of theirs get them busted in front of the king for not worshiping the iron statue or golden statue, I should say. They get thrown into the fire, right? You may have, This part, you will remember, right? The three guys getting tossed into the furnace, heated seven times hotter than it should be, so that even the dudes who tossed them in died from the heat. And they walk around fine. And King Nebuchadnezzar says, I see the three of them. We threw three in, right? Because I see four walking around in the fire. And one of them is like a son of God. Nebuchadnezzar gets saved, by the way, as a result of that. Worships the Lord of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob for the rest of his life. He was with them in the fire. He was with them in the desert. He was with them in the person of Jesus. He is with you now. He is in this thing that you are, the church, the universal body of Christ. And he will be in future with his people. I'm sorry if I'm starting to sound like a sack record. The dwelling place of God is with man. Behold. And if we can't be grateful for that, it's going to take a lot to please you. I have been wondering, okay, so then what does this sort of look like in life? Because the truth is it doesn't always really feel that way. And I don't always really live reacting to this truth that he's present. And so let's go back to the prodigal son parable. Because I think this is one of the most helpful moments where Jesus is teaching about this. Most people who are Christ followers have two ways that they think they know when they're close to God and when his presence is near. One, circumstances are good. Two, they've been very good. Okay? How dumb. But this is how most of us sort of measure it. I've had a good run of reading my Bible in quiet times and not doing any bad things. I really feel like I'm close to God. Well, maybe you think you're close to God. He's immovable. He was there already. Like, it's made no difference, I promise. But our goodness, our obedience, our behavior often seems to us like a way of measuring, am I close to him or not? Or, I just got a new car, thank you Jesus, you're good to me. Or, I just got the raise, or I just, I'm better from my sickness, circumstances are looking good. I can feel the blessing of God. He does bless, but believe me, how well or not well your circumstances are going has nothing to do with the nearness of God. He was with them in the fire. So you have these two boys, and the one says to his dad, look, you're better off to me dead. I just want your money, and you're more healthy than I like the look of, so you're not going to drop dead any soon, anytime soon. So can you please sell up some of your assets, realize half of your estate, and give me my inheritance now, please? Punk. And the dad, instead of being offended like he should be, or, I don't know, booting the kid out, says, okay, well, fine, if that's what you want, gives him his inheritance. I mean... Jesus' hearers, as he's telling the story, must have been like their toenails must have been crawling back. Because especially in that culture, this is so rude what's going on. And I don't want you to miss that there is a moment in this young guy's life where circumstances are great. 
His dad didn't bite his head off. His dad, miracle of miracles, has given him the money. Now he's left the Middle East and he's gone off to some lovely land where there's better views and he spends money on some of those views uh, and he's, you know, it, for a moment he must be thinking, life is great. You know, if he, you know, hashtag too blessed to stress. Thank you, God. God is near to me because look how good things are. He follows those appetites and like they all do, they enslave him and then disappoint him. And sometimes this parable, we, we then sort of dwell there and we make all these like moral lessons out of that. You know, see, which is really not the point. So you've got this young boy. Circumstances are good for a moment, and that has nothing to do with him being near to God. In fact, in that moment, he's as far from his father as he'll ever be. Comes to his senses, comes back, plans a whole apology speech, thinks he's just going to have to work like a hired slave. And his father runs out, grabs him, hugs him, kisses him, welcomes him home. The neighbors must be thinking, this is so embarrassing. He disrespected you to your face. He's wasted half of your estate. He's now come back. The only way for the father to save face would be to say, you're dead to me, surely. See, you had it coming. But the father debases himself, embarrasses himself, hikes up his skirts and runs out showing his legs, which was, you know, like admitting you drink tea instead of coffee these days. And <laughs> grabs his son, cloak on his shoulders, signet ring on his ring, which is the way that he got to use the family wealth. That's like the checkbook. Here we go. Authority, blessing, access, party, stoked. And the older son, who's been there all this time, remember I said we either think God is close to us because of how good circumstances are or how good we have been. This oaks the head boy of being good. He stayed home, obeyed his dad, done all the stuff he's supposed to, and you know what? He was no closer to his dad than the kid who was miles off because he's grumpy. And he says to his dad the following. He pulls his dad aside when the party's starting to go on. And his dad comes out and looks for him as well. He says, well, what's, what's the problem? Why aren't, you, why aren't you with us? In fact, he's even begging his older son. So are you getting a picture of what this dad is like? Grumpy, please come party with us. Come enjoy. But he answered his father, look, these many years I've served you and I've never disobeyed your command. What a slap in the face. You think this is the father who gives commands? This is a, based on everything we know about him, you think this is a father who wants obedience from his kids based on how he's just treated this prodigal who's come home. But the older son's saying, I've, you know, yes, boss, I've obeyed you all this time, and yet you never even gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. And now this son of yours has come back who devoured your property with prostitutes, and you've killed the fattened calf, and you've said to him, and the father says to the older son, you're always with me, and everything I have is yours. So here's the big idea. Sometimes your good circumstances might be disguising the fact that you are not noticing the presence of God at all in your life. It has nothing to do with the blessing of God. Sometimes, even more worryingly, you might be allowing your good behavior to distract you from the presence of God. And in fact, it has nothing to do with what God's character is like. Both of these boys have no idea what their dad is like. Both of them are just as lost. And you've got this grumpy legalist. He said, well, I was obeying your commands. I was doing all the right stuff. And, and he might as well have been miles away from his dad, even though he was in the same house, because he had no idea what his dad was like. 
I want to read you the full quote from that French mystic of mine, Henri Nouwen, that I quoted you from the beginning. This is how he says, It might sound strange, but God wants to find me as much as, if not more than, I want to find him. Yes, God needs me as much as I need God. Let that challenge you for a moment. God is not the patriarch who stays home, doesn't move, expects his children to come to him, apologize for their aberrant behavior, beg for forgiveness and promise to do better. On the contrary, he leaves the house, ignoring his dignity by running towards them. He pays no heed to apologies and promises to change, and he brings them to the table richly prepared for them. I'm beginning now to see how radically the character of my spiritual journey will change when I no longer think of God as hiding out and making it as difficult as possible for me to find him, but instead as the one who's looking for me while I'm doing the hiding. So the question I have to ask is, am I hiding? If I think I'm not experiencing God, if I feel like he's far from me, and the weight of evidence is that he has always and will always dwell with his people and is with me, so it can't be possible that he's hiding. That is not a rational conclusion to draw. If he's not hiding, I must be hiding. Why am I hiding? What part of me is hiding away from God? And what lie have I believed about him? What misunderstanding of his character have I allowed to step in that's causing me to hide from him? This is not a complicated question, but it's difficult to answer, isn't it? I feel like God's not really present in my life. I can't. Circumstances are great or they suck. Your behavior is great or it sucks. That's really not the point. The question you should be asking is, are you hiding? And why? What part of you is hiding from God? What part of you doesn't think you're worthy of him? What part of you doesn't think he's that interesting? Because if we had an accurate picture of him, there would be reverence. There would be awe. But we would be more fascinated with him than anybody else on earth. We would be more hungry to taste and see that the Lord is good than we are to taste and see anything else. And the degree to which my life goes well I think, is the degree to which I have accurately understood the Father. The degree to which my life is going to go well is the degree to which I've accurately understood the Father. And so if I've misunderstood him, if I've believed some lie about him, a part of me will hide from him. And it's not him hiding, it's me. We get super excited when, like, Roger Federer plays tennis with a little up-and-coming tennis player. You know, when Sia Khaleesi allows the little kids to tackle him and he pretends... But that, those are just men. The God of the universe, behold, he dwells with his people. And if I'm not going to be grateful about that, I am very hard to please. So I want to pray for us for a second. Uh, and I hope you'll allow me to. If you wouldn't mind just bowing your heads. Some of you may not really have ever allowed God into your life. And just like in the tabernacle and just like in the temple, a sacrifice is required in order to approach his presence and a sacrifice has been made on your behalf. And all you need to do is claim that. That behold, a lady fell pregnant though she was a virgin and was with child just like Isaiah said she'd be. Her name was Mary. Her child's name was Jesus. And his title is Emmanuel, God with us. He came. And then he allowed himself to be killed on your behalf. And many of us just need to re-receive the gospel. That in fact, God came for me. I don't have to 
go out and find him. I don't have to climb a mountain. I don't have to go on a super long fast. I don't have to go through any kind of religious process. I simply have to recognize he came for me. And he made the sacrifice required in order to allow me to be with him. And in fact, now he doesn't want me to just have to go somewhere on a Sunday. He wants to build me into his new dwelling place. He wants me to be part of this new temple made of living stones. Others of us maybe have got our heads around that, but have never really thought about what makes us hide. And what lie about God that's connected to. And so, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would lead us into truth, that you'd open our minds to what we need to know and believe about these scriptures. There's some stuff for us to reckon with. As we lead up to Christmas, where we remember the ultimate moment of you coming to be with us. It's not some historical fable. It's current, real-time truth. You're here. You dwell with man. You live in us. And if we're not sensitive to or grateful for that, we've misunderstood something. So please help us to understand. In Ray's words, she was talking about people disqualifying themselves, feeling like you're not worthy. I think that's probably the biggest deal for all of us, that we're disqualifying ourselves in some way. Sometimes, though, we just get distracted. We get fed a lie and we don't even notice that we've believed it. Whatever it is, Lord God of the universe, who is both transcendent and imminent, thank you that we can ask you to come and deal with such tiny, minuscule little people as us and that you will deal with our hearts and that you will bring us back to you to fall more in love with you simply because you love us so much and you long to be with us. You are amazing. You are a very, very good God. And we are very lucky to have you. Amen. Lovely to be with you. Enjoy the World Cup. Don't shout for Qatar. See you next week.